Well, after the 10 a.m., I'm, I'm really exhausted. <laughs> that was quite an emotional thing. But each of the testimonies I've heard here is, is impactful and emotional. And after a testimony, especially two testimonies, I feel like I've run a marathon race or I fought a, uh, you know, a 12-round boxing match. Um, but we love to hear what the Lord has done in lives of those that we care for. And each of you that are here to gather with us weekly, you are cared for. You're cared for deeply by our Lord. You're cared for by your elders. You're loved. Okay. <laughs> Not the way I planned on starting off, but um, our, our title of this week's sermon is Advent, the Mystery of God. 1 Timothy 3.16 is our main text. So the title is Advent, the Mystery of God, 1 Timothy 3.16. And if you would turn to that passage in your Bibles, we'll begin. I'll read that to you. Please follow along with me, 1 Timothy 3.16. Timothy, or excuse me, Paul is writing to the young pastor Timothy here, giving him advice. And this is what Paul counsels him. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So Paul is speaking on our, our sermon topic this morning, the mystery of godliness. And, and when he says that he was manifested in the flesh, what Paul is saying is that, that God became man. God became the God-man, who was Jesus Christ, son of God. And then Paul says he was vindicated by the Spirit and seen by the angels. <clears throat> what Paul means here is that Jesus of Nazareth, his words and the signs he performed were continued on after his earthly ministry by the Holy Spirit attesting to the divine nature of Jesus of Nazareth. It just didn't end. It wasn't this odd three years in history where some strange things happened. No, they continued because, because the Son and the Father sent the Holy Spirit to have these things continue, to have the church grow, to have the gospel spread, which Paul then says that this was proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. So the spread of the gospel went beyond Jerusalem. It went into Samaria and the Gentile nations. And the transformation of lost sinners bear witness to this manifestation that occurred in this far off place. And then Paul talks about the mystery of godliness taken up in glory. And by this he's saying his, his ascension, Jesus Christ's ascension, proclaims the Father's approval of the Son's ministry and his divine and Jesus' divine sonship to the Father. So Paul, as we see, is very clear 
in this passage on his thought to Timothy that the mystery of godliness he refers to is Jesus Christ. And that's how we connect this mystery to the Advent season here in our second week in our sermon series on Advent as we prepare for the day when we celebrate the, the, the great birth of our Lord and Savior. Sadly, we find a lack of mystery in the modern world. Not that mysteries no longer exist, but there is a lack of acceptance of mystery. The idea or concept of mystery is generally widely rejected. There's a reason for this. <clears throat> By rejecting mystery, the idea that people have that they are in control of their lives, that they are the ones who decide their fate, both near and ultimate. Um, they maintain this illusion of control. And in an effort to accomplish this lordship and eradicate mystery, we've reduced life to what may be called brute scientific facts. That there, there's nothing behind what science tells us. Science is the ultimate arbitrator of all things. And there's no mystery other than these brute facts that science unlocks, is trying to unlock, and then shortly or in the long term changes those facts because new discoveries are made, and as is proper in science. But, but <clears throat> by living like this, this means we can only have a surface understanding of ourselves and the world around us. So people we find are primarily concerned with counting only that which can be calculated. This, this is a sign, this is, this is a, the effect of a materialistic world. And, I, and by that I mean um, not just you know, grasping after material things, but the view that all that there is and all that there ever was and all that there ever will be is composed of matter. What we can see, what we can touch, what we can what we can taste Paul writes to the Colossians in Colossians chapter 2 verses 2 and 4 <clears throat> Paul writes to them and tells them what he desired for them was that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And Paul says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Beloved of God, how can you not love your brothers and sisters in Christ? People who are also loved by our Lord and Savior. Should we not act towards one another in a way different from the world, in the way the world treats each other? How are we being loving if we criticize, if we backbite and gossip about souls for whom the Lord shed his lifeblood to redeem? 
Do you find those chosen and elected by the Father unworthy? Are you wiser than he? I couldn't help but reflect this morning, listening to the testimonies we heard, how the Lord has gathered his elect from such different people. Look around you. How many of the brothers and sisters in Christ that are here would you know if it was not for the Lord's love? How many would you care for if it was not for the Lord's love? Just look at the inner band of disciples that the Lord chose and how different they were and how they would have hated each other but for the Lord Jesus bringing them together. Fishermen trying to eke out a living, breaking bread and being in fellowship with a hated Roman tax official. A zealot, a revolutionary against the powers that be, the earthly powers that be, who would endanger all of them. These men would not want to be around one another. They would not be in fellowship with one another. Yet the Lord brings them together just as he's brought us all together. It's amazing. It's marvelous. Don't miss this idea that I'm trying to get across. It is only in love for one another, not in intellectual endeavor, that we can approach the mystery of God with assurance of understanding and knowledge that Paul writes of. He's not saying crack the books harder. He's not saying you've got to burn the midnight oil to understand this stuff. He's talking about love. We, fallen humans, we separate love from knowledge. It, it, it usually doesn't go together, but you see how love is, or how God is combining this in, in just a marvelous way that, that is just amazing. And, and this mystery progressively revealed to believers who love one another, as I say, it really transcends all human comprehension. And so is, it's a divine and very glorious mystery because the mystery is, is Christ himself, the, the second person of, of the Holy Trinity, in whom, as Paul says, all treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Now, when we're transformed in Christ, think of your own experience. You did not become smarter intellectually. But your heart changed. Your love changed. That's this mystery that I'm talking about. What, what Paul is saying by, by this, it, that, that Jesus Christ is the one who holds the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and they're hidden within him. He, he, what he means is we then need not, we, we must not look for any source of happiness or holiness outside of Jesus Christ, that it's all contained in Christ. So then mystery does not mean simply not knowing something. The mystery of love deepens the closer a person becomes to us, the closer we get to our Lord and Savior, 
the mystery deepens, becomes infinitely great. Consider human examples. She knows me so well. How does she love me? And the more I know of her, the greater love grows and stronger are the bonds of love. This is, this is the mystery of love that we experience on a human level. And we know from experience and from what God's word tells us how surpassing his love is from what we know, from what we can experience. So that brings me to my first point this morning, point number one. The mystery of God is centered in love. The mystery of God is centered in love. When we are in Christ, alongside others, for there's no other way to be in Christ except with others, Scripture is very clear on that, we are in Christ only in communion with other believers, not by ourselves in solitude. The Western church, primarily the American church's idea of Christianity, and this idea seems to be growing, this idea of Christianity is existing apart from the body of Christ, that is the church or the assembly of the saints, is not found in Scripture, not found anywhere in Scripture. In the Christian faith, there's no such thing as a spiritual lone ranger. You're either in the church and gathering with the saints, or you are in the world. Do not be deluded on this point, beloved. The Lord has us gather for a reason. It is his way. It is his plan. It is his method. And our bonds to each other, when we are in Christ, alongside one another, our bonds to each other are yoked with the divine. This is how God loves us in this manner. And this is how we love him. And this is how we demonstrate this marvelous love, how we reflect it. It's with one another gathering, being in communion, being, being in, in unity in, 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 the, in the truth of the gospel. Paul writes to the Philippians, Philippians 1, verses 8 through 11, he talks about this love. And he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Paul has learned how to love his brothers and sisters through Jesus Christ. From what we know of Paul as Saul, he did not seem like a very loving man. He was the persecutor of the church. He desired to have followers of the way, as Christianity was called at that time, persecuted, put in prison, murdered. And he becomes an apostle of love. 
that's transformation. That's evidence right there of the power of the gospel as we have experienced. He goes on to say, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There's that connection between knowledge and discernment and love, this, this fitting together. So that tells us it's more than, it's not just an emotional reaction. You know, we have, we're human beings. We have all sorts of emotions and we react with emotion to things. And our emotions rise and they crest and they fall and we're hot and we're cold. And we love something and then we don't. Like my, my wife, she loves steak and ribs and stuff like that. And she doesn't understand how I love them too, but that doesn't mean I can eat that every single day for years on end, which she can. <laughs> so this is the way our, our love is, our, you know, human love. But, but, but Paul, he's, I hope you see this, he's talking about something different here, right? This, this is not the varieties of, of human emotionalism. I mean, I may love a certain dish today and then you know, next week, it's like, I don't love that so much anymore. And, the, and for this, this, he's praying for this, and he yearns for this with them. He says in verse 10, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The day of Christ is our Lord's return, and the judgment that is to follow, that we will be, you know, the people we want to be, who he intends us to be when he comes back and that we be, in verse 11, we be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Boy, that's a pastor's heart right there. Loving his people and wanting them to know how much they are loved, not only by him, but by the creator of the universe, by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This wonder of all wonders is the mystery of God. God is, God is with us, but does not conform to us. This is what we need to understand and what, what, what many in the world cannot grasp. We do not shape God. He does not comply with the views and opinions of people. God does not take opinion polls. He does not care what the vast majority of people say. God does not believe in being on the right side of history because however he decrees history, brothers and sisters, is the right side of history. Not what we say it is today and then change tomorrow. Because we are his image bearers. He is not our image bearer. Contrary to what secular sociologists, anthropologists, and religiologists may claim that we human beings have invented gods to make us feel better about the, you know, the, the horrible stuff that we encounter in the world. And here, in the mystery of God, is this truth that only the humble can believe, truly believe, in the Lord God. The one true God who is not found, he is revealed. Only the humble can rejoice in God's absolute freedom, that he is not constrained, fenced in, boxed in by our short-sighted vision, 
Nothing limits him. Nothing limits God. Nothing outside of God changes him. And God is eternally faithful to his own being and essence. He does not change like we do. I love clam chowder today and next week I don't. I change. God doesn't. We, we, he is faithful to us in this way. If he loves us today, which we know because he tells us and he's demonstrated, that means he loves us tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. When we despair, God despairs with us. When we despair, God works wonders. Despair can trap us, but, but God is free from despair. So he doesn't enter into a state of despair, but he understands our, our despair. Is probably a better way to put it. While we can be trapped, God cannot be trapped. God takes what man views as hopeless and brings us hope. And wonder. God takes the small and insignificant and makes it mighty and powerful. In wonder of all wonders. The all powerful sovereign God loves the lowly, the weak, the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the broken. Did you hear what I described? Did you hear who I described? I described you. I described me. I described all of us. The mystery of God dashes our sinful fallen pride in ourselves against the rock of his everlasting love. Our natural love in our sinful state is for the things that are disdained by God. We, we love, admire, and emulate the high, the mighty, the confident. We want to be in with the in crowd, as the saying goes from when I was young. We want to have it all together. But none of us, not one single person, anywhere, anytime, any place, are or is that person. We put on shows to make others believe that. But if you delve into, if you could see inside the person who you think is all that, has it all, all together, wrapped up, figured out, you would find someone as broken and messed up as each of us are apart from Christ. It's a lie of Satan, that ancient serpent that we mortals made from the mud can be anything other than what God would have us be apart from him, apart from God. We are nothing. We are not to believe that lie. You will be like gods. And look around us. Look around you. Many people believe that lie. The ancients built high places of worship. And did that highness bring them closer to the one true God? No. Scripture is very clear on that. It was just the opposite. The triune God is near to the lowly. Why? Why is that? 
because it glorifies God. Therein lies the mystery which the world does not understand. Jesus of Nazareth, a carpenter from the small village of Bethlehem, born outdoors in a livestock pen, most likely a natural cave in the rock of a hillside. He's cradled in a feeding trough of hollowed out stone, a manger. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. This was the Lord of glory. This is the Lord of glory, born under those circumstances. And think of the circumstances of his birth. These things I just described, they point us to something. They point us to his death. Notice the similarities in the birth and then in the death where his body is wrapped in linen. He's laid on a stone shelf within a borrowed tomb hewn out of the rock. As hard as it is for us to understand and even to to talk about, to think about, because we love babies, don't we? We think about this baby, this poor, innocent, weak baby that's going to die this horrible death as a man. But he's more than a man. And the death that he is going to die is for you, for me, for all of us. That is his purpose in coming to the world. That's what the world misses in the celebration of Christmas. They miss the cross. They do not want to see the cross, the shadow of it, looming over that manger in Bethlehem. The advent of the Lord of glory was not announced to kings in their palaces or to religious leaders in their temple, but to shepherds on the Judean hillsides. Now we think of shepherds on our greeting, our Christmas cards and and beautiful paintings and illustrations we've seen of them. That was not a real grand occupation. That That was a lower class job. It wasn't something that, you know, oh, the, oh, look, the shepherds are here. Great. Oh, they, 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 they answered the invitation. Boy, we're really fortunate. No, these, these men were, were low and humble men whose task was to keep watch. Remember last week we talked about waiting? They were, their job was to wait and to watch over their flocks by night, as Luke tells us. So to, to these men who were really disdained and deplorables of their, of their time, there appeared an angel of the Lord. And Luke describes this. The glory of the Lord shone around them, the shepherds, and they were filled with great fear. That brings us to our second point. The mystery of God is revealed only to the humble. The mystery of God is revealed only to the humble. And it's revealed. It's not discoverable. Our own efforts at discovering the mystery of God only bury the mystery deeper from us. The first advent, the earthly ministry, and the death and resurrection of the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, 
was, as Scripture tells us, a stumbling block to the Jews. This was nothing that they expected. It was nothing that they desired. This was not it. This guy, we don't know who he is, but he's got it all wrong. This is not the Messiah. And it was folly. The, the, the English Standard Version says it was folly to the Gentiles. Folly uh, is a translation of a Greek word, moros, which our word moron or moronic come from. So it was this, I, this, this what was explained to them about the gospel of Christ, this, this, this Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, they thought that's stupid. That's, that's foolish. Why? Well, a God would not, a God, if a God was to come, the Greek would, would say, by Greek I mean all the Gentiles, the non-Jews in, in the world of that time, a God would come in honor, not in the shame of the flesh. And he would be found in a great temple, not in a dusty little town on the backside of nowhere. The high and mighty would be a God's audience. He would not walk the common footpaths seeking the cast-offs of society. And a God certainly, most assuredly, would not die for his people. Oh, he might make them die for his entertainment. Or he might have them die to win a wager with another deity. But... But a God does not sacrifice himself. We sacrifice to the gods. And if this God did die, he would not rise again in a body of flesh and blood. See, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles, their idea was that the whole purpose of, of life and the idea of pagan perfection was escaping this world and this body. That this was all bad stuff. This was all a mystery to these people, to the Jews who stumbled, to the Gentiles who thought it was stupidity because God, the true God, the Lord God, became poor, lowly, and weak out of love for his people. And we know that God did not have to appear like this. He appeared like this because he chose to appear like this. He came to us because we could not come to him. Impossible. God became like us so that we could become like him. God the Son came as the Son of Man so that we could become sons of God. This, brothers and sisters and friends, this is the only way. 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. Kind of a long passage. You might want to turn there and follow along. Because Paul is speaking to you. He's speaking to me. He's speaking to all of us in 1 Corinthians, first chapter, verses 26 through 31. Hear what Paul has to say to us. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things 
that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Brothers and sisters, how could we find anything incredulous in the Bible after we have learned the mystery of the manger and the mystery of the cross? We say we believe in the birth and the death and the resurrection of our Lord. But maybe there's stuff in there in the Bible we say, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't buy that. We must be consistent in coherent in belief. Think of those people that you know that are atheists and how ludicrous the idea of a virgin birth is to them. How ludicrous the idea of God dying for his people and resur being resurrected, how ludicrous that is. And we believe it. We believe it with our hearts. And yet, we may have disbelief in other things. And, and think on this, belief and disbelief are not to be left together undisturbed in the life of those who call themselves believers. These, these are like, uh, belief and disbelief are like oil and water. They, they, they don't mix. So how does one accept the mysteries of the manger and the cross, yet reject the literal six-day creation for geological evolution. How do, how do you do that? How do you reject man and woman's special creation by God for the failed theory of Darwin? And then deny the account of a catastrophic worldwide flood. And then, oh, it's, well, it's just some, it's an illusion, it's imagery, it's maybe a small, you know, local flood. Friend. Brother, sister, do not divide the word of God with the balance scales of the world. We believe in, with all of our hearts this miracle that we're, that we're in the Advent season for. God does miracles. So don't come to me. Don't come to other brothers and sisters with scientific facts saying, yes, I believe in that, but no, science argues against this other stuff. No. Point number three. The mystery of God is a scandal to the self-righteous. The mystery of God is a scandal to the self-righteous. <clears throat> also to the pious. But I need to explain my use of that term pious so you know what I am talking about. This, the, I'm talking about the self-congratulatory behavior of religious practice. Like the purposely disheveled Pharisee with the unwashed face. He leaves his face unwashed. Visually, by his appearance, he's shouting out to everyone, look at me. Look how righteous I am. I am in fasting and denying myself. Don't you wish you were like me? Follow me. Be like me. And maybe you can be righteous also. Doing these things to impress others 
in pretentious and pretended piousness. We know this is wrong because God the Son forsook, abandoned the majesty of Godhood for his people. Paul explains this in, in Philippians 2, 6 through 8. He says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What Paul's saying is that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, in every way, attribute and characteristic is exactly, was exactly like, is exactly like, and will be always exactly like God the Father. Yet, he came down from the throne to a manger for us. Paul goes on in verse 8, and he says, And being found in human form in that manger, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that's part of his humbling, that he was obedient to the Father in these things, that he had to seek the Father in all things. And seek the Father he did and was the model of perfection in prayer and submission to the will of God. So what could you or I possibly bring to the mystery of God in the manger? Our praise and worship is the only thing we could bring. What could you or I bring to the mystery of God on the cross? Only our sins. That is why, Paul says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, the wisdom of God, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And there are two places, beloved, where all human power, all earthly riches, all mortal greatness account for nothing the manger, and the cross. The courage of the great and powerful failed there. They avoid both. No human king came to the manger to greet the king of kings. No powerful lord dared to stand before the cross and witness the execution of the lord of lords. Instead, they hid in their chambers and they sent underlings there to try and remove the threat from heaven by murdering baby boys and by executing and crucifying the Son of Man. Only poor shepherds watched in wonder the baby in the manger. Only a few faithful women and one beloved disciple stood the death watch at the foot of the cross. Those who are accounted as nothing by the rich and powerful, that's us, are welcome at both these places. 
But even the rich and powerful are welcomed there. That's, that's the odd thing. That is, that, is, that is the mystery of God. It's like if, if I had my way, it's like, no, man, you lost out. You can't come. No, you treated me like this, you can't come. But God calls all. God calls all if they come to worship the Son of God in the manger or at the cross. Not their own selves or their own petty little gods. Point number four, our last point this morning. The mystery of God is not a theological puzzle to be solved. The mystery of God is not a theological puzzle to be solved. Think about the account of the birth of our Lord that we read about. There were no priests or religious scholars present at the manger. No theologians. Yet Christian theology commences right there in Bethlehem on that day. That's when Christian theology, which is really the only true theology, in, even in an academic sense, That's where it commences. Both human intellect and human reason will never explain, cannot explain how exactly that miracle came to pass. The mysteries of God, the incarnation, the virgin birth, the person of Jesus Christ himself, the Holy Trinity cannot be explained by brute scientific facts. They never will be. They can only be acknowledged in humility. We can only say, yes, this is true because God has revealed it as true. So theology's task is not to solve the mystery of God in light of human wisdom and experience. If you've studied any of these things, you know as you read and you read, commentary after commentary, that what it will always boil down to is, thus saith the Lord. Theology's task then is to preserve these miracles as miracles. We need to look at these things and think on these things and give praise for these things because they are miraculous. They do not conform to our brute scientific facts. We, need, we must glorify God's mystery as mystery. Hear the tale of the shepherds in Luke chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. So with the Advent season, we prepare to witness more than 21 centuries later something very much that these shepherds witnessed. The great unfathomable mystery of God 
with us. Why would the Lord God, creator of all things, visible and invisible, sovereign king of the cosmos, leave his heavenly throne to come and dwell amongst us in a tent made of flesh? We know what these bodies feel like. Rarely is a day when they they feel really good. Why would God become like us creatures of clay who spend a short little while wallowing in dirt and grime and blood and crime? The message in the mystery is that it is not to be always like that. Through the first advent in the manger, through the death on the cross, and through the coming second advent in power and glory, the Lord moves heaven and earth to rescue and restore his beloved. You, brothers and sisters, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this Advent season. We give thanks for your mysteries that you have revealed to us. We give thanks for the power in them that has transformed us, that that is restoring us continually until our Savior's return, that's restoring us to be like him day by day, even perhaps hour by hour. Father, guide us that we may be faithful in all things, that we may reflect your love that you have for us to one another. Father, that we not react like Paul calls it. We don't react like the old man. We, that we be the new creation that you've made out of us. Father, we ask, for, we ask for blessings and we give thanks for the baptisms we are going to witness shortly. Our brother Lalo and our sister Araceli. Father, we give thanks for this little assembly that you allow us to have here in Ontario, Father, where we may grow together in spirit and in knowledge and in love. Father, bless this day as it goes on, that we may glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.